0: Thank you guys. Welcome back. Uh, If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we're looking at verses 14 through 16 this morning. Uh, Every once in a while in Hebrews, you're going to find these really great passages that are uh, really compact, are very powerful, and I encourage you uh, many times uh, over the past few months and again this morning that if you come across a passage like this, that you want to commit it to memory. And so if you don't have a memory verse for the week, let me encourage you to consider Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to read this passage together and then uh, and, and we'll listen to what God has to say to us this morning. So Father, we commit our time to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient it is a guide from you to us. We thank you, Lord, that you choose to use the proclamation of your word in this context to your people uh, as a way to strengthen and teach and help us to know you more and to walk with you. We pray that you would speak to us. We, uh, we ask that you open our ears. Uh, pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that if we do hear your voice this morning, that we would not harden our hearts, but that we would be uh, completely obedient to the word that you say to us today. So that you may be glorified in our lives. We pray for your favor and your blessing on the reading of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, uh, I'm sorry, last week we talked about uh, over ten times in the passage last week. He talked about entering God's rest. and So we talked about rest and what does it mean to rest in Jesus' presence temporarily right now on earth. And what does it mean to rest in God's presence for all of eternity. And so in the context of rest... He then enters into this discussion about Jesus as the high priest, as the great high priest. He started that conversation way back in Hebrews 2... Uh, and then he's going to continue it in three, I mean, sorry, in four, and then it's really going to continue throughout the rest of the book. Uh, I, I don't want you to count how many times I say the word priest over the next three, uh, three or four weeks because it's just going to come in rapid succession over these next several chapters. And you can see why it happens, right? If, if the author of Hebrews is addressing a Jewish crowd, and if some of those people within that crowd have their, uh, their resistance up, They don't want to hear about Jesus or they don't want to consider personal faith in Jesus, and and the author is putting away their arguments one at a time. If I were to set up all the arguments along the podium here, he's already talked about how the angelic mediators, how Jesus is greater than that, and so he removes that barrier. Then he goes into the Mosaic Law and how Jesus is greater than Moses, and he knocks away that argument. He then talks about Joshua. He talks about rest. He's he's hitting all these Jewish cultural buttons and as he's doing so he's knocking out their argument now one of their greatest arguments for going back into judaism might be this priestly sacrificial system and so the author of hebrews is going to deal with that objection that they're giving him that the priestly system the sacrificial system uh, is greater than jesus and so the author of hebrews is going to say you've got it all wrong the sacrificial system and the priesthood foreshadow what Jesus did. So he's beginning that conversation here, just simply knocking out all these Jewish arguments about why Jesus is superior. Jesus is more superior. And we understand the context of why Hebrews uh, is, is relevant is that the, the people he is addressing were tempted to walk away from Jesus altogether. We started in Hebrews chapter 10, and many of the people were, uh, were carried off, or they were suffering persecution, or they were struggling personally, and so the temptation for the believers that are being addressed here was to backslide, or to fall away, or to completely walk away from Christianity. Now that's relevant to people here in the room, because there are people all around this room who are struggling with their faith. Struggling, wondering, do I believe? Is this worth it? Can I follow Christ? Can I make the proclamation? Can I hold fast to my faith? Many of you struggle with that on a regular basis, wondering, can I sincerely, with a whole heart, follow Jesus? Uh, And sometimes it takes a long time. It takes a long time for it to be revealed within us that we may not even believe. Uh, the warning to Paul, from Paul to Timothy was that, that many from among you will, will, be, uh, will, will walk away from the faith altogether. So there is within the book of Hebrews an understanding that people who once named the name of Jesus, who stood up on stage and said, I gave my life to Jesus, and they were baptized, and they served in the church, they, Lord help us, they may teach Sunday school, they may, they may in all these ways have been a part of the body of believers, but sometime later, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years, maybe even 50 years, will at the end say, I, I don't believe that Jesus Died on the cross for my sin. I don't, I don't believe that he was raised from the dead and they will walk away from sincere faith. That's the warning of Hebrews. So the constant warning by the author of Hebrews is that we hold fast, that we hang on, that we remain in Christ. So our text this morning, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, you follow along as I read, says this Since then, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted just like we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So there you see, there are two commands in this passage. Let us, in verse uh, 11, I'm sorry, let us, in verse 14, let us hold fast to our confession, and then in verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And those two are built upon each other. So let's, let's understand what the confession is. If, we're, if the command is to hold fast to your confession, to stop backsliding into sin, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the deceitfulness of the hardness of your heart that leads you back into sin, how do you stop from backsliding? How do you stop from falling away? How do you keep from being one of these uh, who falls away from Jesus? How do we keep... Nobody wants to be Judas, right? Nobody names their children Judas because Judas was the guy who betrayed Jesus and fell away. How do we prevent that from happening in our lives. How? The author says to hold fast your confession. That is that if if it was one of the treasured possessions in your life, uh, that you, as you clean out everything else, there are some things that you just hold on to. Maybe you have a basement like mine that is just filled with extra stuff. A few years ago, I came across this uh, this idea that i'm not going to hold on to anything if i haven't touched it in a year right and so i got my wardrobe down to three shirts uh, my wardrobe now to just three pair of pants i realized if i hadn't worn it in a year i'm not gonna i'm not gonna keep it i got this ultra minimalist attitude through just got rid of a ton of stuff but there were some things that i held on to there were a few things that I held on to, and they, they were these like spiritual journals or uh, maybe books that the Lord had used to speak to me, but there were just a handful of things that, didn't make the, that made the cut, right? A lot of things went, but some things I held on to. He's talking about holding on to your confession. Now, what confession is that? Well, in Romans chapter 10, we learn of the confession. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you confess. With your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That is, if you're willing to verbalize that Jesus is my master, and that I am his doulos, I am his servant, that he is the master of my life. If you're willing to say that Jesus is the Lord of my life, that Jesus is the commander-in-chief, that he is the captain of my life, I don't wear the the, the hat, the ownership hat of my own life, I am yielded to Jesus Christ. That is, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I have faith. I believe in my heart that he is alive, that God raised him from the dead. That's the confession. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Verse 10 says, With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so you think, well, that's easy enough. I can say with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. I can say with my mouth that God raised Him from the dead. But the Bible doesn't give room for just a verbal confession. It must be accompanied by a life confession, right? Have you ever um, seen people who say one thing with their mouth and another thing with their lifestyle? Of course you have. We all understand the temptation to be hypocritical, to say one thing and to walk and to live in a different way. And so the confession with our mouth must accompany the confession with our life. It it will naturally flow out of that confession that if Jesus is Lord of your life, you will naturally walk in the light, as we read earlier. Verse 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the confession The confession is Jesus is Lord and you believe it in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The understanding is that Jesus is alive today. That he is alive and well, speaking and intervening in our lives. And that for those of you who have committed your life to him, he is the Lord of your life. You take your instructions from him and you obediently follow him. That's the confession. So how do we hold on to that confession? How do we keep from falling away? How do we resist the temptation to betray that confession? How do we resist the temptation to fall away? How do we hold fast our confession until the end? If it is true that only one out of 10 will finish strong in the faith, how do you ensure that you will, walking by faith in Jesus, in perseverance and endurance, finish well in the faith? How do you do that? Well, this passage describes that you, by faith in your great high priest Jesus, you walk by faith in him. So what does this passage say? What does it reveal to us about the great high priest? And what's this priest language all about anyway? Because we don't really understand priest language very well. Um, What is a high priest? A priest is someone who stands between God and man. That's simply the most basic definition of a priest. They are a mediator between God and man. A priest stands between God and man. If you want access to God, you had to go through someone. If you wanted to, uh, for example, eat at an exclusive restaurant, and you couldn't get in, but you knew somebody, right? Maybe you know the person who uh, takes the reservations. Uh, and so you know someone, and they get you into an exclusive restaurant. Or maybe uh, you want to get backstage passes to a concert, Uh, And so by the authority of that pass, you're able to get backstage. You have access to something that not everybody has access to through an authority. Uh, Let's say you want to get into a locker room or something like that. Uh, You have access through someone else's authority. Uh, That's what a priest does. Uh, In 1998, I was uh, offered the opportunity to be a chaplain uh, for the University of Missouri football team. Uh, And as a part of that, I was able to uh, spend time with the team during the week to uh, pray with them, to address the team during their uh, team dinner, uh, to go into the locker room, to go into their practices, to participate in the game uh, that they... Not participate. Nobody wants me to participate. (laughs) But I was a partaker in the team activities during the week, on Thursday night and Friday all during the day, through all the walkthroughs, and then on the sidelines through the entire game. Now, with that access, with that opportunity, I was able to bring one guest with me. Uh, And so I took my friend Marty, we were college roommates, and and so Marty and I, with the the access that was granted, Marty was able to spend time uh, and to be a part of that as well. That gave him access to something that he had no access to before. That's the function of a priest. They give, they're the mediator. The authority of God has been given to that mediator so that you now have access to God. So the high priest functioned as that high spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. Now just a side note. In the Reformation, what was reclaimed was this great doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. That is that in Christ, you don't have to go through a priest any longer. That there is one mediator between God and man and it's the person Jesus Christ. Did you know that you... You won't get any closer to God through some sort of special access that I have. If you come to me and spend time in my office, there's not this sort of presence of God that is different for me than for you. In Christ, every believer has full access to God through Jesus Christ. Is that in the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the church door of the castle of Wittenberg uh, in 1517, right? When he did that, one of these ideas was that that there is access for the believer into the presence of God through the mediator Jesus Christ. Jesus gave you access to God and this verse is proof of that. This verse is proof. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we can find mercy and find grace to help us In a time of need. How do you keep yourself from falling away? You understand that Jesus fulfilled the role of high priest in an amazing way. An amazing way. You understand that Jesus is a superior high priest. Why is Jesus superior to the priesthood? Well, Let's just focus our attention on what this passage says. Because, like I said, the next four or five chapters are going to get into it in greater detail. But this passage says that he is able to identify us. Look at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. With our weaknesses, Are you aware of your weaknesses? Are you aware of the areas in which you constantly struggle? Maybe for you it's the inclination to gossip. Maybe you just can't stop talking about someone. Maybe it's a way in which you kind of bolster your self-esteem and you, you sort of cast a dark shadow over someone else's life to to make yourself look better. Or maybe it's a habit or an addiction. Maybe it's a a temptation in your mind or a weakness in some way. Uh, This describes Jesus as able to sympathize, not with our sin, but to sympathize with our weaknesses. To sympathize. What does it mean to sympathize? It's two words. Sim meaning with, and pathos meaning feelings or passion. Sometimes we get sympathy and empathy confused, and so let me just help unpack that. Empathy is when you understand the feelings of someone else, but you don't necessarily share those feelings. I, I, I use empathy all the time. Uh, on a weekly basis, I may counsel a dozen people who are in a variety of crises. Some of those crises, I can sympathize with them. What does that mean? I enter into and share the feelings of what they're experiencing. Some of them I can't, and I have to empathize. And so I say things like, I can imagine that that's incredibly hard. I struggle to imagine what you must be feeling, but I imagine that it's very difficult. I don't share those feelings. I'm empathizing with them. But for some people, I can sympathize, which means that I share the feelings of them. The dictionary for that says the act or capacity capacity of entering into or sharing the feelings or interests of another. Typically, we tend to think of situations involving emotional pain. Jesus is described as entering into our experience. Jesus didn't empathize with you. He didn't say, I imagine you must feel this way. He entered into our experience and felt the the full range of human emotion and responses to the human experience. Have you ever noticed the colorful language in the Gospels? Think about the emotions that you see about Jesus in the Gospels. I just read this article recently that said the Gospel writers paint their portraits of Jesus using a kaleidoscope of brilliant emotional colors. For example... Jesus felt compassion. Jesus was angry, indignant. He was consumed with zeal. He was troubled. He was greatly distressed. He was very sorrowful. He was deeply moved. He was grieved. Jesus sighed. Jesus wept and he sobbed. He groaned. He was in agony. He was surprised and amazed and he rejoiced greatly and was full of joy. And he greatly desired and he loved. You ever notice the full range of emotions that Jesus experiences? He was fatigued, he was tired, he was cranky sometimes. Jesus experienced all these ranges of emotion that we feel. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's the Jesus that we are following. That's the high priest, which is totally different than the high priest that we see presented in the Gospels. The actual high priest, right? Not Jesus the high priest, but the, the, the uh, Caiaphas high priest. He would not enter into their world, he would not make himself lower, he would not enter in and, and be with the people. We see the opposite with Jesus. He's touching lepers. He's walking with sinners, he's eating with sinners, and he's experiencing all these different things, but he's entering into their experience. Jesus is sympathetic with our weaknesses because he's experienced the full range of human emotion. He felt happiness. There were times when he probably belly laughed, right, with his family, with his disciples, or with his parents, There were times when he experienced great joy and maybe appreciation for simple things like a sunrise or a sunset or hearing the laughter of children. Probably moments where he just smiled and enjoyed the experience that he was having. There were times when he experienced loneliness and sorrow and touch of depression and anger and contentment. Jesus experienced all that so that when when you say... Uh, I'm experiencing this, Jesus can say, I know what that feels like. Jesus is able to experience, he sympathizes because he's experienced those things. But why does that matter? I would rather have a savior that can walk into my life and say, not only, not only can I see the situation that you're in, but I understand the feelings that you're feeling because I've experienced those feelings. Jesus experienced all those ranges for the guilt of sin. And even that he experienced at its fullest measure, Where? On the cross. On the cross. You feel guilty when you sin? Have you ever walked away feeling shameful about the sin you committed? You think, well, Jesus never experienced that. No, he did. The entire weight of the world's sin was poured out on him on the cross. He experienced the full range of human emotion. Not because of sin he sinned, but because of our sin. What does it mean that he passed through the heavens? What does it mean that he passed through the heavens? He passed through the heavens. The high priest would pass through the Holy of Holies in order to make atonement for the sin. What did Jesus do? He didn't walk through the room. He walked through the heavens, right? He was was in creation. He was at the beginning. He was there with God, and through him the world was made. So Jesus didn't pass through a room in a temple meant to illustrate something. He didn't walk through curtains and a variety of furnishings to make atonement for sin. He walked through God's presence Sinless and pure, then entered our world and offered his own blood so that we could be forgiven. And what happened to that curtain when Jesus cried out to tell us die on the cross? When Jesus said, it is finished, the sin is paid for, what happened? The curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place was what? Torn in two. Torn in two. Solomon's temple was 40 cubits high. Do you know how tall Herod's temple was? It was 60 cubits high. We're told in Leviticus that the curtain could have been as thick as four inches thick. Can you imagine a 60 foot, four inch thick curtain dividing the holy place from the most holy place that was torn in two directly from the top to the bottom? What did that symbolize? Listen to this. Uh, quote from this article during the lifetime of jesus the holy temple in jerusalem was the center of jewish religious life the temple was the place where animal sacrifices were carried out and worship was carried out according to the law of moses and hebrews tells us that in the ta- in the temple there was a veil that separated the holy of holies which was the earthly dwelling place of god's presence from the rest of the temple where men dwelt the sig- this signified that man was separated from god by his sin isaiah 59 Only the high priest was able to pass beyond the veil and only once a year to enter God's presence for all of Israel and make atonement for their sins. I told you about the thickness of the carpet, the curtain, the size and thickness of the veil, make the events occurring at the moment of Jesus' death on the cross so much more momentous. Because when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and he gave up his spirit, Matthew 27, 50 and 51 says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So what do we make of that? What significance could that possibly have for your life today? Well, the significance of that, above all, was that the tearing of the veil at the moment of Jesus' death dramatically symbolized that His sacrifice was sufficient for the atonement of sins. What Jesus accomplished on the cross was enough for your payment to be made, for you to be declared righteous, for you to be declared sin-free. When you give your life to Jesus and you put your faith in Him, all your sins are wiped out. And you now have what? You have access. You can, verse 15 and 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you hesitate to pray? Do you, have you ever struggled with sin and felt like you're not quite contrite enough? I've got to make myself feel better before I go into God's presence. Does anybody ever identify with that? That you feel like you have to sort of hurt yourself or make yourself more contrite or make yourself more humble or do some good works before you can come into the presence of God? Listen, believer, you don't have to do that. Jesus took your guilt on the cross, so you don't have to feel guilty about coming into his presence. You can burst open the throne room doors and walk directly into the presence of God because you are covered by the blood of Jesus, which was sufficient. You can't feel guilty enough. That's a work that you attribute for yourself. You can't feel guilty enough to, to, to atone for your sins. Jesus did it for you. So if you feel a burden of guilt and shame because of your sin, listen, Jesus bore that for you so that you now can walk boldly with confidence into the most holy place. But could you imagine how terrifying it would be to walk in there that the high high priest had to feel this incredible amount of uh, seriousness about what he's about to do. I'm about to walk into the presence of God and there is a really good chance that I'm not coming back, that I could be instantly. You remember when uh, Uzziah went out to steady the ark as it was stumbling on the ox gate? And just by touching the ark, just by touching the presence of God, he immediately fell dead. There is a seriousness to the presence of God and yet we see in this passage you can just walk right in through Jesus Christ. You have the confidence through Jesus to go in there. Do you take advantage of that? Do you pray with that kind of confidence on a regular basis? Are you able to enjoy your relationship with God based on what Jesus purchased for you as the high priest? It's truly remarkable that you can with confidence enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way He opened for us through the curtain that is His body. We see the flesh of Jesus being torn for us just as He was tearing the veil for us. So what should we do? We should draw near with confidence. We should resist temptation and we should walk joyfully by faith in Jesus. Father, thank You so much. Thank You so much that for years uh, this symbolically Seeing the priest go into the most holy place with the blood of the Lamb. You you purchased and made a way so that we could have access to You through the precious blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's by His blood that we can have confidence to enter into Your presence. Would You forgive us that we don't? Would You forgive us that we don't enter into Your presence more regularly? Would you forgive us that when we do so, we feel like we have to offer an additional sacrifice to make up for what Jesus, we perceive, didn't make up for? Thank you that you took our guilt for us. We don't have to, we don't have to feel more contrite. We don't have to feel more guilty simply through the blood of Jesus and His righteousness that covers us. We have access to you. Would You help us to take advantage of that and to walk with You by faith and to enjoy Your presence that was so marvelously purchased for us through the blood of Christ? Would You help us to do that so that we may know You better? In Jesus' name.